If you've tuned into WIHI today, you'll hear a podcast focused on a topic central to IHI's work, patient safety. If you're looking to brush up on the latest thinking in the patient safety field, look no further than the IHI Open School's new patient safety curriculum launching on June 10th. In addition to essential learning about foundational concepts like human factor science, risk mitigation, and teamwork, the revised curriculum will include over 50 new videos from leading experts, over 40 downloadable tools and resources, also available in mobile-friendly format, and new upper-level courses to provide recommendations for current and aspiring healthcare leaders to drive toward total system safety. Look for these revised courses in the IHI Open School online course catalog beginning June 10, 2019. Now, here's WIHI. The prescription-related opioid epidemic in the U.S. has caused a reckoning of sorts in the healthcare system, a reckoning about the dangerous side effects of very effective painkillers, a reckoning about over-prescribing opioids in too large quantities for especially short-lived pain, a reckoning about acute pain management that practically became synonymous with OxyContin or Vicodin to the exclusion of other less risky drugs and non-medication remedies. Well, now that medical providers, regulators, policymakers, and communities have all taken a hard look at what's been in order to move forward and create more holistic acute pain, ma- excuse me, acute pain management systems, what should these systems look like? Well, we're going to wade into some fundamentals uh, with special attention to the importance of talking honestly with patients about pain, imagine that, and pain management on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you live, and then you can find us after the show uh, on demand on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I am also IHI's Director of communications. Well, this edition of WIHI draws from a relatively new resource from IHI called Advancing the Safety of Acute Pain Management. This report is the result of an expert panel, and we're very fortunate because three of those expert panelists are with us for this WIHI. Joining us by phone, yay, Joan Maxwell is a patient partner and patient advisor affiliated and active with Patient and Family-Centered Care Partners, Inc., and the John Muir Patient and Family Advisory Council. Joan has over 40 years of experience in the fashion industry, working for retailers and brands, and it was through that lens that she became a patient at John Muir Hospital in Walnut Creek, California, and became passionate about the patient experience, and we're so glad she did. Hi, Joan, and welcome to WIHI. Hi, Madge. Thank you so much for having me here. It's great to be here. Terrific. Also joining by phone, Scott Winecki is currently Director of the Safe Use Initiative at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, FDA. After 12 years in private pediatric practice, he started working for the FDA in 2011, first on biologics, and then he joined the FDA Center for Drugs in 2016. Scott is the recipient of a Public Health Achievement Award for leading the very first project at the FDA to use Sentinel electronic data combined with medical record review to rapidly refine a safety concern. So welcome to you, Scott. 
Thanks, Madge. Glad to be here. And joining me in the studio is Dr. John Kruger. He's Division Vice President of Quality for CHI Franciscan. That's a nine-hospital health system in the Pacific Northwest, part of the larger national Common Spirit Health. John is also the CMO of Rainer Health ACO, a former IHI fellow and current IHI faculty, contributing to and leading much of the content for IHI's Opioid Safety Expedition Series. So welcome to you, John. Thanks, man. It's great to be here. And we're very fortunate that John's in the studio. So I want to just get a few things uh, kind of out there up front so you know kind of where some of this is coming from. As I mentioned, this edition of WIHI draws from a new resource uh, from IHI called Advancing the Safety of Acute Pain Management. We've got a slide up on the screen. And if you can bear with me, I want to read something that's in that small print there. The project that led to the report was made possible by financial support from Pacira Pharmaceuticals to further the patient safety mission and the delivery of safe care. IHI exercised sole and independent control of all content and editorial decisions related to the project. IHI does not in any way endorse or recommend any products or services provided by Pacira or any other commercial entity nor is any commercial influence or bias allowed or reflected in the content of this work. All right, if we fly to the next one, Mo, there, uh, these are the, <clears throat> excuse me, the names of all the expert panelists, and you see we've got John and Joan and Scott here. Uh, this is also something you can see in the document itself. This uh, particular report is chock full of resources you can use. Next slide there, Mo. Including a model videotaped conversation between doctor and patient. There you see that. Uh, about acute pain management. And this stars our own John Kruger and Joan Maxwell in that video. And uh, lastly, I just want to say there's also a, uh, so this is just some of the resources, but seriously, at the back of this report, there are so many things that people can copy and distribute and, you know, help people get started on a whole bunch of things. This is a sample script, uh, again, uh, reflecting one of our focuses today, which is that all-important conversation with patients about acute pain. So thanks uh, for having me sort that out and put that up out to you up front. All right, John, we now come to you. So pain management, acute pain management, enormous top, it's an enormous topic. So tell me why the expert panel uh, decided to focus on acute pain management in particular, uh, and what do we mean in that space? What's there and what isn't? Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Madge. So I, I think a lot of the focus on uh, safety and pain, uh, the treatment of pain, has been focused around chronic pain management. And so we know a lot now that we didn't know um, even uh, three or four years ago about chronic pain management. But what's starting to emerge in the literature is uh, how the effect of how we manage acute pain also has an effect on uh, how many patients end up developing chronic uh, use of uh, pain medications, for example, and why that can sometimes lead to safety problems. So that was really the focus for this, this particular paper. Um, and this particular um, this particular project, the the other issue that I think is really important is that for acute pain management, we wanted to also focus on this as a safety initiative. Um, 
as well as deal with effective treatment of pain. Um, you will see a lot of references to opioid safety in here because opioids are used uh, to a large degree to treat acute pain. And so we're having, um, we're having that conversation within this work as well. But I, wanna, I want to uh, actually emphasize that um, the focus is, again, on effective and safe treatment of acute pain. So it's not just limited to opioid safety. Uh, on the opioid safety uh, area, though, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, you know, a few statistics. So, for example, um, you know, we know that 46 uh, patients a day in the U.S. perish due to just prescription opioid medications. Uh, the larger opioid problem that we believe is, is caused to a large degree by how we're treating acute pain is the 130 uh, Americans that perish every day uh, due to an opioid medication um, and, or an opioid uh, substance. So that's illicit substances plus uh, prescribed uh, pills. Um, so the the issue with that's you know that's a huge statistic and we all know we all know that. Um, so uh, what we're trying to do is start the conversation in a structured way uh, to improve the safety systems around acute pain management, and and that's how this entire paper came together. Okay. So again, uh, reference here is the report itself. Um, we'll get that chat if it hasn't been chatted in already which vicky probably has we'll remind you of it again it's something you really um, should peruse if you didn't have a chance to do so ahead of time but john why don't you right now just summarize kind of quickly sort of the key broad brush of things <coughs> that that have to happen uh in a system way for an effective acute pain management system right absolutely so uh, the committee really came up with four uh, areas uh, that we call tent poles, uh, and these are on page 23 of the document, but I'll just uh, kind of briefly go over them uh, to talk about them. So the first is a common vision of acute pain management as a patient safety priority. And so uh, what we're talking about here is across the system, uh, from the board level uh, down to the patient level, uh, does the entire system um, understand uh, what acute pain management is, um, what the issues are with it, um, and is it a patient safety priority in your organization? The second area is patient and family-centered acute pain assessment, management, and monitoring. The reason I really like this, uh, this particular tent pole, is that you'll notice that it says assessment, management, and monitoring. So what we're actually what we're actually suggesting, uh, and that is why the co-chair on this project is a patient, Joan, um, is we involve our patients actually in all three of these areas. Uh, so it's not just uh, happening from the healthcare side of the house. The third area is comprehensive education, training, and evaluation of effectiveness of training, and this is for predominantly for staff in a health system, uh, including physicians. Uh, but also including all the people that take care of uh, patients in acute pain. So be it pharmacists, nurses, techs, obviously clinicians, uh, and also including the patient themselves. Um, patients and their family members can be powerful advocates uh, in their own uh, uh, self-care, 
um, and especially in their own safety. And so uh, sometimes they're the first to notice that something is, isn't going right. And then last is what we call effective systems of care. And this is a very broad area. So do you have things that work in your health system uh, structurally? And so we've described those in great detail in this report and given you some great tools to use to implement that in your health system. Okay. Um, I'm just going to um, move to one more slide here, Mo, making acute pain management safer. Uh, again, kind of a summary of various things. Uh, I asked John to kind of give the broad categories. There's many things under this this tent. As we um, so take a look at that. Uh, by the way, let's just clear this up. Uh, this person has asked right away about to clarify this particular. Can you repeat this? Uh, these data you mentioned 46 and you mentioned 130. Yeah. So again, uh, this data comes from the CDC. It's approximately from the 2015 time period. So. Uh, 2015-2016 time period. Uh, 46 is from pers at that time was from prescription opioids, um, and 130 deaths were coming from uh, heroin and fentanyl and prescription opioids combined. So uh, what we've seen with with opioids is actually three waves. The the first started in the 90s with prescription opioids and the deaths starting to come from that. By 2010, we had a surge in heroin deaths. And then starting about two to three years later, we started to see a surge in synthetic uh, fentanyl particularly, but there's also uh, uh, other areas of fentanyl that are being used. Okay. So as we turn to Joan, um, and I mentioned before that the resource we're talking about today uh, does include a sample script of a discussion between provider and patient. Um, you and Joan uh, videotaped a conversation, a very careful, thoughtful conversation, and not to play cynical, but I think we're going to hear from Joan about the importance of these conversations, and maybe right up front you could tell us, are health systems challenged in this way right now to start finding ways to do this in a consistent, reliable way? Are they now set up to have these conversations? Well, one of the things you'll notice immediately about the video is that it's roughly 20 minutes. Uh, so the major challenge for a health system is time. But one of the things that Joan felt was very important was that uh, having a video like that, even a conversation video like that uh, between a either provider or a staff member and a patient, um, that a family could take home with them. Uh, that was an important resource uh, from a patient's perspective, and I'll let her talk a little bit more about that. But uh, So I want to stress that uh, we don't expect pay a provider and a patient to spend 30 minutes together on every talk to just talk about acute pain management safety and post-surgical or perioperative safety. Um, but we do think that there is an ability to leverage um, some technology and tools, and it doesn't have to be really expensive. Um, and if we understand what patients are really interested in, uh, then it helps us build an effective uh, tool. Okay. Thank you so much, John Kruger. All right. We're going to turn now to uh, Joan Maxwell. And uh, thank you, Joan, so much for being part of the program and being part of the expert panel and all this work. So tell us about uh, the importance uh, of this work here from your perspective and also this conversation uh, that uh, patients 
need and want to have um, with doctors or nurses uh, about pain ahead of procedures, I guess, ideally. Thanks, Joan. Yes, thank you so much, Matt. So just to quickly give you my background, I was diagnosed uh, about five years ago with breast cancer. I had a double mastectomy, developed a staph infection, and over the course of almost three years, had nine surgeries. After one of those surgeries, I had a stroke. So I got a lot of good experience in the healthcare system over the course of that time. And really, um, based on my background um, in the fashion industry and how uh, brands connect with customers, realized there was this opportunity for patients to kind of work alongside of um, the medical community to improve things and tweak the experience and hopefully have a significant uh, positive outcome as a result of that. And one other disclaimer is that I do have a brother-in-law who is struggling with opioid use disorder as a result of uh, failed back surgery. And so um, in my own family, as I know is true for many of the people on this call, we have a very personal example in our lives of um, this road, which once you're on it is a lifetime journey. So for me, I had nine surgeries, nine times I was prescribed opioid for pain management, and nine times I wasn't given an option of other pain management suggestions, nor did we have a discussion about opioids and how to use them successfully. So in fact, early on in the journey, I didn't know that Norco was an opioid. So I, I say that as a reminder of how little patients who feel very capable in the rest of their lives um, end up in the healthcare system and have so much of a lack of knowledge and understanding. Um, also, this world is so complex these days. I mean, at one point I had two surgeons, an infectious disease specialist, a neurologist, a cardiologist plus all the other um, hospitalists and everything that are involved in your care. And it makes this world very confusing for patients. Um, and honestly, I think there are several times that I would have managed fine with ibuprofen, but it never occurred to me that switching away from Norco might be beneficial. And I, I didn't have this conversation with any of my doctors or nurses. Um, there's so many misconceptions around pain management. I was told constantly by friends and family, stay ahead of the pain. And I'm sure that um, a lot of the people on this call know of that like line of thinking. And um, that leads to taking medications that maybe you don't really need. Um, and also, I understand that from the point of medical professionals, it's difficult to um, hear that patients expect to have zero pain, um, and that must be extremely frustrating because it's not in the best long-term interest of the patient in terms of recovering well. 
um, and administering medication to accomplish zero pain puts them at higher risk of opioid use disorder. So help us help you who do the right thing. So if you told me that having a moderate amount of pain, I would be able to recover faster, eliminate the risks involved with opioids, and return to my life quicker, I would sign up for that. I, I just need to understand that I have choices and what those choices are. And it's so helpful to have context. If, for example, if you said what percent of your patients are able to manage their pain with a plan that gets you off opioids in the first couple days, let's say, that would encourage me to try it also. Um, you know, if you said that over half your patients didn't need opioids after the first 24 hours, I think my competitive side, I would be motivated to do the same. I, I'm just really happy to be on this call and see that the conversation is evolving from kind of what is your pain number because that conversation seems to be solely medication-focused, and I think it's important to have that broad discussion about the weeks post-surgery as early as possible. And I certainly realize that there are many cases where it isn't possible, but whenever it is, and I don't know how this works into everybody's busy schedule, but I think it's going to make a huge difference, and it would be amazing from the patient point of view to know, you know, what to expect, like how will we feel when we wake up from anesthesia, and who will be there, and what's the plan for that first 24 or 48 hours, and what's the expected trajectory of pain recovery, what are the multimodal options for pain management, and what functions might I expect to begin to do. So really making it a joint effort between the patient and the medical care team and not just the medical care team administering to the patient. You know, I found that there were a lot of ways to manage my pain. I mean, pillows made a huge difference for me because I had had lymph node surgery and drains and the simple act of supporting my arms provided instant relief, warm blankets, which, you know, I love um, and believe firmly in made a big difference. Getting out of bed and moving around, as hard as it is to get patients to do that, it really does help. So, you know, all of these things I realize have costs associated with them, and that's a concern, but I do believe that these things make a huge difference and that that these conversations, you know, it's ideal to do it the way John and I did with a surgeon and a, a patient speaking, but it can be done by um, other people in the office. It can be done through a YouTube video. I have a friend who's having knee surgery next week and got this beautiful notebook with all this information about pain management from her uh, surgeon. So, you know, I think together um, we can come up with creative ways to um, have these conversations, and I really feel from the patient point of view it will be a game changer. Wow. 
<clears throat> Joan, thank you so much. Uh, it's really so valuable to hear uh, your experience, have your insight. I'm sure the expert panel uh, felt that as well. Um, so hold Joan's thoughts uh, kind of in your mind and John's. And I want to turn now to Scott from the FDA. And Scott, you're welcome to comment on anything you've heard so far. Uh, the Safe Use Initiative is also got a role for patients to play uh, in particular, and that's why we also um, wanted uh, to include this, and also Scott, of course, uh, part of the expert panel. So, Scott, uh, tell us uh, what what's going, what your thoughts are, and tell us a little bit about the program at the FDA. Thank you. Right. So um, the Safe Use Initiative is geared toward reducing preventable harm from drugs, so um, meaning anything that the, the Center for Drugs regulates. So uh, not vaccines, not gene therapies, um, but, but certainly this would fall into the category of things like opioids. Um, we also do work on things like diabetic medications and anticoagulation. Um, but we, we fund studies as well as participate in activities like this IHI expert panel um, to hopefully re reduce some of the harms that, that are preventable. And uh, I think Joan gave a great example of, you know, sometimes things do not go as planned and we can't account for everything in medicine that can, you know, derail a patient's, you know, course. But some of these things are very much preventable um, if we think about them or plan for them or, or, or take time. I, I vividly remember an in-person meeting, we're all sitting around, maybe 20 of us at this, this expert panel that you put up. And, and, uh, at one point, Joan said something like, well, clearly, right? There's like a protocol for how when someone wakes up from surgery, uh, what they need in terms of pain meds and how they're going to be treated. And, and everyone in the room sort of looks at each other and hesitates. And I mean, I think the answer is every physician or every institution has a way that they do it for a particular surgery. But that's not necessarily standardized. And we're just, you know, Joan mentioned, well, wouldn't it be great if there was data on what percentage of patients need a prescription pain medication? I think that's where we are now is looking at what do patients need or what do, let's say, most patients need? Because obviously there's a, a whole spectrum of, of people that might experience more or less pain after a given surgery. Uh, but trying to figure out what do most patients need and, and how do we address that? Um, and, and hopefully, by standardizing that, what we're going to do is reduce overprescribing. Okay. Well, thank you. We'll talk a little bit about um, the Safe Use Initiative. I want to make sure people can kind of make a connection here about the work yep. that's going on. Thank you. Yeah. So there's there's a couple of studies that we funded regarding regarding opioids. Uh, one we we just got the results of, and this was something that dates back um, working with the the New York Prescription Drug Monitoring Program, they uh, sent out, they, they looked in their database and identified um, physicians who were either prescribing opioids and benzodiazepines at the same time, which puts patients at risk for, for overdose and and, uh, uh, and death, or patients on a high dose of, of daily opioids. And they sent these physicians either a letter or an email, there was a control group, just to say, could they, by by saying to a physician, could you thoughtfully, you know, think about, you know, reconsider how you're prescribing and treating this patient? Would it be appropriate to continue the same way? 
Um, could they be tapered? Is there a way you could decrease the risk for the patients? And 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 the interesting thing they found was that um, sending out a letter by traditional mail by post actually had a a significant influence, whereas sending an email didn't. Probably meaning that uh, we all ignore many junk emails that we get in this day and age. Um, and I think looking back a couple of years when that when that study started, we were really happy if we decreased prescribing. Right, that's what we showed. If you give feedback to physicians. Um, you will decrease prescribing. So I think that's good. But what that study didn't show is, did we really decrease the inappropriate prescribing? Did did that cause physicians to then um, think about what patients could be treated differently and more safely? Or did it just show that there was a decreased prescribing and maybe that prescribing was in uh, patients who, who truly needed pain control, which is, it's in no one's interest to just stop prescribing opioids across the board, right? We want, we want people to have adequate pain control. So now we're looking at a, a, there's a study underway where they're really looking at specific indications, typically surgery. So let's say a knee replacement. And they're saying, okay, if you're a patient with a knee replacement, um, you get a prescription for pain. Uh, the, the hospital follows up with you by text or email on a daily basis and says, how many, how many pills have you needed? Are you still taking pain medicine? How is your ability to control your pain? They then look at those numbers and say, okay, well, maybe everyone was prescribed uh, an average of 50 pills, but maybe 80% of people took 20 or less. So then the next phase of the study will be changing the set of orders that doctors can just check off. They can prescribe more or less or something different, but if they just go down the standard checklist, it'll then say 20 pills. And then repeat the same thing with a series of patients getting their knee replaced. How many pills have you needed? What is your ability to control your pain? How many pills did you need? How many days did you need? And hopefully what we're we're going to find out is that without changing the patient experience in any sort of negative way, patients can still control their pain and have adequate numbers of pills, we can reduce prescribing. And when people have looked at these kinds of things, often we find that that people are prescribing more than double what most patients use. And the idea here would be not only to decrease the amount prescribed, but certainly the amount left over sitting in people's medicine cabinets or kitchen or wherever they keep medicine that obviously could then be diverted into the wrong hands, right? The, um, you know, somebody comes along and, and takes that medicine either um, because they have an opioid use disorder or perhaps even to sell it. So, so diverting it to someone who's not the patient. Um, and the goal here is basically to prescribe what patients need, but not more than that. Okay. Um, let me ask you something. Make a connection for me between that follow-on conversation with patients. Uh, people have left whatever day surgery or maybe overnight surgery or whatever uh, from the acute environment. Um, and what what's, what's the vision that you have in terms of the call that comes to the patient uh, at, at what point in time? I, I realize you're talking about this study and wanting to find out how many, right, right. How so much has really, been used. Yeah. That's really, yeah. that's really in a study environment so we can figure out exactly what patients need and make sure we have that right. Um, and, and to be clear, we're not doing the study as the FDA. We're funding the study for, for people who are uh, academic researchers. But I, I think it is certainly reasonable, uh, depending on the kind of surgery and the situation, yeah, there should be a follow-up call just to make sure that patients are doing okay, or or maybe even more importantly, to make sure that the patient has a contact number where if they have anything that they're concerned about, um, whether it's pain control or whatever other consequence of surgery, they're worried about infection or 
something else that they they have a way to follow up and and uh and and contact you know their healthcare team. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right, we've laid out uh a lot of things. Scott also um and we have uh some another slide here the disposal of unused medicines. There's quite a bit on this and um it's important. And I you know Scott, if you want to say something about this, uh, please go ahead. And then I want to ask sure. Joan what it would mean to her uh, if anybody talked to her about disposal, uh, let alone so, how many prescriptions she had left. Go ahead, Scott. So, so without question, this is the one of the most visited pages on the FDA website is how to dispose of unused medications. And, and you can imagine m- many people uh, either just don't get rid of medicines or Sometimes people hoard opioids, or, or even if you think about um, someone's downsizing or a, a, an older relative dies, and a lot of times they have many medications left over. So, so this is one way. And I think you know, first option here is a take back option. Um, you, you can just uh, you know go on and, and Google medicine take back options, and you can the DA has a finder where you can literally just put in your zip code and it'll tell you what's closest. So, so that's a great way to do it. Many medicines, as, as shown here in the little illustration can be mixed in a plastic bag with an unpalatable substance and thrown out. Um, but some medications, because they could be potentially fatal in a single dose, uh, either if ingested by, say, a child or a pet, uh, we recommend flushing. And so many of the prescription pain medications and some other medications, because they can be very toxic, uh, are on this flush list. Uh, now you have it up on the screen. So the reason it's there is, again, just to minimize the risk of a serious accidental exposure, especially kids and pets. Um, and if the take-back option is not available, then we recommend flushing the ones on this list. I think people always ask about environmental concerns, and, and there's some information on the FDA website about uh, environmental issues related to flushing. But, but I would just simply frame it by saying the risk of accidental exposure and a potentially fatal overdose uh, I think is is much more likely and a much bigger risk than than any potential concern about environmental impact. Not to not to make light of that or or to ignore it, but I think you know having this in an unsecured location and most people do not lock up their medicine. Um, you know, kids can get into things, teenagers can get into things, and this is again just a way of getting that out of the house and making sure that um, that you know these medicines aren't getting into the wrong hands. Okay. All right. Thank you, Scott Winecki from the FDA and the Safe Use Initiative. Uh, I said before we uh, really uh, fire up the chat here, uh, Joan, very quickly, did anybody uh, talk with you uh, through all these different surgeries about uh, the accumulated uh, <laughs> prescriptions for pain that you might uh, be having uh, kind of built up in your own home? Uh, no, there were no conversations, although I'm hopeful that that's happening more now. And the fact that my surgery was a couple years ago, I, I'm hoping that it's changed even in that short time. Okay. John, did you want to weigh in? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so Madge, I, I just wonder if we could go back to the one slide that, that talked about the uh, the various areas to concentrate on, because I know we've been talking about. I wanted I wanted to just briefly talk about some things that Scott touched on as well. Okay. Um, we, you know, one of the things we know about about opioid use across the country comes from a study that was done in 2013 uh, by Shoshana and 
Um, it was published in the Journal of Hospital Medicine. So it shows that there's a 37% regional variation in prescribing habits across the country, um, with the highest in the West and the lowest in the Northeast, if we look at, if we look at it on a country basis. Uh, the other area is, is that by surgery, uh, there was an interesting study by Howard that was published in JAMA in 2019, just came out, um, and it shows by the type of surgery that you had, the number of pills prescribed and the number of pills consumed. And uh, if you look at that study, what you'll notice is that patients are, in many cases, taking less than 10% of the pills prescribed. So that's a lot of opioid that's that's sitting on shelves and things like that. So you know, that's why it is so important that people know how to dispose of those those drugs because we know that those drugs end up uh, exposing uh, people to opioids. And then uh, some of these folks become chronic users and some of these chronic users develop uh, addiction or even accidental poisoning from the drug. Um, and so that's, that's why that's one of the pillars that we're focusing on um, within, this, within this project is, you know, that's one of the harm areas we're focusing on. So when we think about acute pain management and opioids in particular, you have two separate harms. You have that, that risk of future addiction that you're trying to avoid. Uh, that's one of the, that's one of the harm areas. And then you have the harms associated just with the immediate use of the drug. So respiratory depression from opioids, uh, even constipation. You know, we did a big project with New Zealand and IHI, uh, on reducing those harms in hospitals. Um, and so there's there's those there's those acute areas. So there's a there's a slide that we have here that kind of talks through ways that you might think about reducing some of those harms. Uh, and I think it's uh, one of our one of our other slides that we we had up that that talks about the very specific areas. Um, All right, show it to we'll, me. We'll have to. <laughs> okay. uh, Sorry, folks. Little production here behind. All right, we'll get to that slide. I, I appreciate that again. We're slide sixteen. Okay, go ahead. So on slide sixteen, it says you know some of the things that we're doing is uh, for opioids. You know, you, if we have a good way to risk uh, patients, for example, before we give them an opioid or, or when they're on an opioid, that they might have those acute harms. So there's a there's a really great tool that I'll mention that Michigan came up with called a MOS score. Uh, and there's a variety of these sort of things out there, and it, we mentioned these things within the the resource here. Um, uh, but you know, and then there's also um, uh, screeners like that you can use for patients that can help with this. Uh, what we're learning about uh, future addiction, for example, is that there's some patients that, uh, due to po probably um, a genetic uh, uh, mechanisms called single nucleotide polymorphisms. Uh, that's a big word, <laughs> I, um, but that they are more prone to be at risk for future addiction. And so for those patients, um, right now we don't have a genetic test for that, but I suspect that will be coming in time and we'll be able to screen screen people before we ever expose them to that and, and, and lower the risk that way. The other one uh, comes from some recent uh, literature that we have uh, that was published in Morbidity and Mortality Weekly a report from Health and Human Services, and what that showed is that if you take in a in a post-surgical setting, so again these are, you're in an acute pain setting, if you prescribe an opioid for longer than five days, um, what uh, at ten days, in, in in effect, what happens is that twenty percent of those uh, people become uh, chronic users for at least the next year, 
And so that kind of sets up the possibility they might go on to develop other things. So if you think of all the scripts we write that are at least 10 days, the other one is we know that high dose is also associated with more harm. And so there's some numbers now that we can put around that, and this paper really illustrates that. And then, as Scott mentioned, when you combine an opioid with a benzodiazepine, there's a load of literature coming out now that this really increases the risk for that acute harm. So in particular, not breathing well or opioid-induced respiratory depression. And a new paper shows that benzodiazepines in particular are associated with transfer to a higher level of care in a hospital and also acute myocardial infarction in hospitalized population. Um, and then there's a few other things on here I want to cover. Standardization of policies for ambulatory ED and post-surgical use. Uh, University, uh, University of Michigan and the state of Michigan has done some really great standardization around uh, reducing that, that variation across a lot of different surgeries by saying these are the recommended amounts of opioids you might prescribe for these particular types of surgeries. Same thing in the ED. Do you have a refill policy uh, in your emergency department like New York has? Um, you know, only three days, no refills for lost scripts, et cetera, those sort of things. And then um, the, the secondary risk, uh, by being, uh, having a prospective way of addressing the risk for secondary harms from opioids, such as OIRD, falls, nausea and vomiting, and accidental overdose, um, those are really uh, having those set up not only in policies, but also in, in platforms and, and ideally built uh, into uh, alerts within the, the, the electronic prescribing uh, system or, or monitoring system that you have in your facilities. And then probably the most important one that there is a, a huge body of literature on is, you know, we've always assumed you have to treat acute pain with either Tylenol or, or an opioid or an NSAID. But what there are a lot of other options, and, and many surgeries don't even require any treatment other than just maybe mild uh, analgesia and, and maybe not even a pill. Um, most importantly, I think what, um, what Jonas has pointed out and what patients continue to uh, point out is that when we involve them in these conversations, and that's really the wraparound of this whole project, is when we involve them in the design and creation of, of their care plan, um, uh, great things uh, usually happen for most patients. Well, thank you, and thanks for, you know, elaborating on all of this. We really, uh, thanks, John, uh, we really welcome your questions, your comments. Uh, we're getting in some uh, links there to some of the references. A lot of these will be up on our website uh, uh, as of tomorrow uh, as well. Um, I guess one question I have uh, as we're waiting for your questions What's easy to change and what's hard to change? Uh, I imagine many people who are tuned into the program today are sort of trying to figure out where are they on this, you know, uh, range of things. Where are they in, in kind of the evolution of a change from almost an automatic um, sort of prescribing of very, you know, uh, powerful painkillers and trying to open up systems so that there are policies, as you're saying, there are cross-all surgeries, uh, there are other modalities possible, there's built-in time uh, for the, you know, conversations with patients ahead of surgery, uh, sort of allowing a lot of things to come out into the open in those conversations. Where are we in this process, John? You don't have to give me an exact number, but 
where are we, would you say, as a health system, and what seems to be the harder piece of it, perhaps? So, you know, those regional prescribing differences exist for a reason. Um, uh, it's either, it's a mix of uh, training and education and personal preference and just the way that we're, we're taught and trained, I think, as clinicians. Um, so, um, you know, Clearly, we know a lot more about the issue right now uh, than we did um, probably back when we were in medical school <laughs> and, and learned about the meds. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, it, it's hard to say. I think, I think there are definitely areas of the country that are becoming reducing um, uh, variation that is, you know, unsafe variation is what I would say. Uh, and then there's... Um, I, one area that I am a little cautious of is that um, I think what we're learning, for example, about chronic pain management now um, is that the tapers were way too fast um, and that it probably created some more issues by um, just tapering patients off of their medication and not having a transition plan. Um, and so uh, hopefully the CDC's come out with guidance around that. But I think you know, to answer your question, um, most systems are are struggling with this. There's regional pockets within most systems uh, going on. There's uh, certainly uh, thought leaders within systems that are standing up or changing their own personal practice. But what we're trying to describe in this paper is a mechanism by which you can put uh, a systematic way, you can approach this at a system level and actually start working with your system to come up with something that's that's good for your patients and your population. And uh, also, you know, it does include a lot of tools, but there's a lot of tools out there that we don't include as well. And so, um, again, it has to be, the approach has to be customized to your system. You have to involve the, 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 uh, stake, all the stakeholders, especially the prescribers. Um, but I would also add the missing person consistently seems to be the patient. So if you involve the patients um, in, in a meaningful way about uh, what would be an important piece of information for you to have, um, what, what do you think about this, and, and, help it, and let them help design that system, uh, I think we can come up with something really great. Okay. Thank you so much. I think a couple people here on the chat, uh, John, would underscore that, uh, kind of looking at the expert panel, applauding uh, the fact that Joan Maxwell uh, has been very involved in this, uh, but encouraging uh, more studies and more collaborations like this to involve more patients. And somebody is also uh, suggesting uh, that uh, patient voices and patient journeys should be really looked at over time. Point well taken. Um, what's your sense, uh, Joan? Uh, <laughs> do you feel like you're the only one being asked these days, or do you have a, you're a patient advisor? You work with uh, a couple of different groups here. Uh, do you see some changes going on in terms of uh, people who don't have your exact experience but certainly have something to offer to this conversation? Uh, yes, absolutely. I feel like uh, things are changing for the better. There are a lot more patient advisors out there. 
um, and they are being included just at the hospital that I'm at, John Muir in Walnut Creek, California. Um, in the beginning, uh, we would just kind of meet amongst ourselves, but now we're on a lot of committees. Um, I sit on the nurses' unit council meetings. Someone else sits on the safety committee. So we're being kind of fully utilized throughout the hospital. And as they work on projects like a recent project to improve the discharge process, um, they do include one or more patients in those meetings. So I definitely see a change for the better. I think the opportunity is that patients aren't paid for this work. And so therefore, you tend to get patients who can afford to devote the time, but we really need a cross-section of all patients, including ethnicities and English as a second language. And so to do that, we may have to offer a small covering expenses or paying a small stipend to get the variety of patient voices that is necessary uh, in this work. Thank you, uh, Joan. I think that's also a really important aspect of this, of, of patient and family engagement in general, and with this issue in perspective. Scott, uh, over to you uh, and the FDA and the work that uh, is going on there and also being supported. Uh, where what, what strikes you as kind of harder or easier right now in, in the journey that's going on here right now? Yeah. First, I would I would just agree that you know the the patient voice is incredibly important, and you know FDA has made a lot of efforts to um, hear the voice of the patient. Sometimes in terms of uh, rare diseases, but also anytime we're running into a a difficult or controversial or rapidly developing area, certainly pain management falls falls under that. And we've had a lot of public meetings and advisory committee meetings uh, about that. In terms of what's easy and what's hard, um, I don't know that anything is easy, but I would say we're further along the journey in terms of looking at acute indications for pain. And I think we have a better idea of um, the appropriate kind of prescription, the number of pills, the length of time you need to be treated, as, as John said. And I think that by by being judicious about the length of time we prescribe, uh, we do lower people's risk for developing uh, chronic use or opioid use disorder. I think one of the hardest aspects here are are chronic uh, pain patients because every case is very very different. It's uh, very challenging, and and you're always looking for ways to balance um, the the risk of opioid prescribing, but but also the the functional status, the quality of life for the patient. And, and I think that that in terms of making progress there, um, that's that's more difficult and a more challenging area. Uh, and I think it, it's going to take more time for us to figure out maybe the um, the optimal way, if there is an optimal way, uh, to sort of standardize that. I just think that's a very challenging area. So, again, I think we're, we're further ahead on acute than on chronic. Okay. Thank you. I think that's an important distinction also to make. John, who needs to lead in this space? We certainly are agreeing patients and families need to lead. Where else, really, in the health system? Um, I'm curious, just the whole infrastructure and kind of who takes the lead 
in a health system these days to kind of reset uh, common practices? Uh, can it come from anywhere? Or what's been your experience of the kind of leadership needed and from where? Well, I think I think ultimately, you know, all all leadership comes from your board of directors um, setting the tone um, of what they, and that can even be that they want to focus on the major safety areas uh, for an institution or an organization. Um, I think if if medication safety is an important area for your board of directors at your hospital, just or at your health system, look at how many. Um, adverse related events and you can define that in multiple ways you can narrowly or, or broadly but you can kind of get an idea of how prevalent that is uh, and share that data with your board of directors um, or with your CEO or or with your executive leadership at your hospital who really do have to set the tone that safety is important for this organization we're going to prioritize it um, from there who carries the water um, it's usually, and this report was designed for uh, quality improvement experts or, or a chief quality officer or for uh, somebody leading quality initiatives within an organization. Um, again, I think the key point and, and the reason that we were very deliberate to include a patient, and as one person pointed out, only one patient, but she's a super patient. Um, so we only, um, if we, sh we will, I, I always think more patients are better, but, um, um, but, but Joan is really an exceptional patient. And so, uh, she, we, we felt like we only needed one in, in essence. But I mean, if you can't get a, a lot of patients together, at least bring one patient into this conversation for this design and consider it for other, for other projects. Um, because, uh, it, it, it just changes the entire conversation. The things you thought were really important or you were going to have to invest a lot of money in, you don't have to do that. But sometimes less is more, um, and, and the patients are already thinking about it. They just need to be brought in the conversation. Okay. All right. Uh, Mo, do you want to say anything about this upcoming program? Go ahead. Absolutely, Madge. Thank you. So we've had a lot of discussion today about patient safety, and we all know that the need for patient safety solutions does not stop after the program ends. That's why IHI is proud to invite you to our patient safety executive development program now in its 16th year. Patient Safety Executive Development Program takes place October 24th through 30th at the beautiful IHI offices in Boston. And for more information, you can visit IHI.org slash patient safety exec. Back to you, Matt. All right. Thank you so much, Mo. Well, uh, I want to acknowledge the comments on chat. We don't resolve everything on every WHI, which is a good thing, I suppose, and that will continue to bat it around. Some people are concerned about flushing, uh, as I imagine, because we've all been uh, thinking more in the last decade about concerns about things getting into the water stream. So that's something that can certainly be uh, picked up on. And we do take away uh, the significance of Joan's role and wanting more Jones um, and, you know, a, a diversity uh, in, included in that. So... Um, I guess let's just go around the horn really fast, and uh, if there's any new thing on the horizon that you would want the audience to be paying attention. Scott, I'll put you on uh, the spot first. You did say more attention needs to be paid um, 
you know, in the chronic area. Um, but uh, uh, anything you'd like to point to? Yeah, I, I think more attention in the chronic area. I think developments there are probably going to be, um, uh, you know, sort of slow in coming, and it's going to take some probably years um, for that to evolve. Uh, I, I think what is going to come down the pike in the next year or two is, uh, and John alluded to this as well, is is much more of standardization for um, for acute surgical indications. Uh, FDA is working with the National Academies uh, of Science, Engineering, and Medicine to to come up with a review of of what information is out there um, and and has already been sort of uh, standardized. What information is currently needed, and then to uh, find out ways to get that data that we need for other indications. So I think. The, the next jump we might see, and I, I don't know that would be evident necessarily to the public, but I think to hopefully to practicing um, physicians, what's going to be evident is that there'll be more standardization, um, and so we can reduce some of that uh, regional prescribing. And, you know, there's always going to be some variation. I think that's perfectly reasonable, but, but I think what we don't want to see is uh, going from one county to the next, and you see a factor of seven in the amount of opioids prescribed per resident or something. Um, and, and there are those instances out there where you see this dramatic difference just from state to state or county to county. So so hopefully I think we'll see some reduction in that variation. And, and hopefully in some ways it'll be invisible to patients in that their pain will be treated uh, adequately um, and, and they'll be well taken care of. But hopefully what we'll see is not a lot of opioids uh, sitting around in people's houses um, that, again, could lead to opioid uh, addiction or chronic use down the road. Thank you so much, Scott Winecki, for your thoughts today and your work. And hopefully we'll talk with you again soon uh, as the work goes on. Joan, um, any thoughts uh, to leave us with or kind of what gives anything you're going to be involved in as you move along through these issues or anything you'd like the audience to be thinking about? Uh, the patient voice. I, I'm delighted that the patient voice is something that seems like is uh, being included and just would encourage people to include all kinds of patients in their work. And um, I would just say, don't forget the warm blankets. Okay. And thank you so much. Thank you, Joan Maxwell, for uh, being part of WHI. And, John, you get kind of the last word, <laughs> but not of the chat is anything to say about okay. it. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. So I think there's a couple areas. Um, obviously, I think Joan's warm blankets are, uh, are, are, uh, are hopefully we've started a trend there uh, for anybody that's worked in uh, in a cold hospital. Uh, getting a warm blanket is is, is wonderful. Um so um, I think one area is really a more personalized medicine. So, you know, what we're learning now about uh, the way people respond to different pain medications, the way pa some patients don't need as much pain medication, uh, part of that is genetically mediated, part of that is um, situationally or contextually mediated. So uh, I think that science is getting a lot better for us and we'll have better tools to use and know what to use um, in, in better ways so we can be safer with the meds that we have. That's one area. The, the second area I alluded to earlier and that for patients that are uh, dependent on uh, controlled substances, um, you know, 
I, uh, I think that definitely there's going to be better tapering and better alternatives to help people bridge off of those substances. And, and some of them may need to continue on uh, a dose of that substance over time, but being able to use that in, in a much safer way. And then for patients that can actually get off the medication, uh, helping them uh, with a much, probably a much more prolonged taper and maybe even assistive medication. So, you know, we're having uh, the FDA's uh, done a lot of work to free up uh, some of the licenses, for example, for buprenorphine, and we're seeing uh, a lot of hospitals now. The hospitalists are prescribing buprenorphine to get the patient started when they're hospitalized, so that they can continue on the outside. So, so I would; those are two areas for me that are really exciting, um, in particular. Okay. Well, we hope we've uh, given you a lot to uh, work from, work on. Uh, good food for thought. Um, with all our panelists, again, a big thank you to John Kruger, Joan Maxwell, and Scott Winecki. Uh, a reminder, you can download the chat, uh, any slides we used uh, on our discussion today when you log off. And if you see that brief survey that uh, we ask you to fill out, please do. It'll uh, help us a lot as we continue to refine what we do on WIHI. Uh, you'll find uh, a lot of material up on our website tomorrow, and look out for the audio as well on the website, as well as on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. On June 13th on WIHI, we're going to be talking about the business case for age-friendly healthcare. Um, lots of innovation going on there, uh, and certainly medication use uh, is a very important part of uh, this issue, too, with age-friendly care. All right. The people who help make WIHI possible are Matt Morse, even if he's on his honeymoon right now, Vicki Minden, Joanna Carmona, Mo Berry, Val Weber, and Pat McTiernan. Big thank you to Jesse McCall for his help today in the studio and with the WebEx. And also a big thank you to Allison Perry, who did a, quite a bit to help me shape today's program. And as I always like to say, it's my privilege to host this program because it's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to WIHI today. If you're interested in learning more about acute pain management, you may be interested in IHI's new report, Advancing the Safety of Acute Pain Management, results of an expert panel convened by the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, featuring video simulation and a script for starting the opioid and pain management conversation with patients. To access the script and simulations, visit IHI.org WIHI and click on the archive page.